0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage where I talk with explorer, adventurer, mountaineer and author Adrian Hayes, who visited Hong Kong a few weeks ago and also spent four years here as a British officer with the Gurkhas. We talk about his quest to conquer the notorious second highest mountain in the world, K2. He tries twice in 2013 and again in 2014 and is successful on his second attempt and he writes about his experiences in his book One Man's Climb, A Journey of Trauma, Tragedy and Triumph on K2. His book is an account of the profound events on K2, but also his guilt and struggles as a father and the lessons that everyone can take from his mountaineering experiences. So it's a book for outdoor climbers and also people who prefer to read of his climbing experiences on the sofa with a mug of coffee. Adrian Hayes is a record-breaking polar explorer. He also completed a crossing of the Arabian Desert on foot and camel in the footsteps of 1940s British explorer Wilfred Thesiger. My first question to him was who influenced him as a child, as he said that as a 12-year-old boy he had posters of his mountaineering idols on his bedroom wall.
1: Yeah, I mean, they were Chris Bonington, which I expect some of your listeners will will know. Naomi Umera, a polar explorer, the first man to walk solo to the North Pole. Ranul Fiennes. So, yes, I was a bit of a sad young child, sort of dreaming of escaping to the worlds of polar ice caps and oceans and mountains. But uh, they all seemed to come true.
0: How do you set about, you know, as a child, you say, I I want to be a a polar explorer. Now, you obviously (laughs) had an army career. Yeah,
1: well, I think you can't, it was very difficult, especially you know if you don't have the confidence and self belief all the the means and ways to do it it's very difficult but i spent 6 years after i left school uh, in age 16 i left school, uh, school at 16 6 years adventuring around the world and then it was only after then so I said well i must get paid to do this so i joined the army 2 years in a special forces regiment and of course uh, 8 years in the gurkhas so 8 or 9 years in the gurkhas including 4 years uh, in hong kong
2: K2's history is dark, dire, depressing and sometimes diabolical. It's a history full of underestimation of the mountain's dangers, poor decision-making and all too often death. And it's a history frequently filled with egos, crass leadership and sometimes human behaviour at its worst. The reader can well be forgiven for holding the most contentious view of not just the mountain, but those of us stupid enough to risk climbing it. The mountain was discovered and measured in 1856 by Britain Lieutenant Colonel Thomas George Montgomery of the Survey of India. And it was given the symbol K2, K for Karakoram, and 2 because it was the second peak measured in the Karakoram range. Why K2? Well, K2, it's the
1: crown jewel of mountaineering. It's the ultimate accord in higher altitude mountaineering. It's the second highest. Everest since, obviously the highest. I did climb that in 2006. Um, but K2 is, I say, it's it's the ultimate challenge. And I suppose the trouble is when you set these big goals, and I've done goal big things in polar jungles, deserts, and all the rest of it, you're sort of looking for what's next. So it opens a Pandora's box in some ways. But, uh, yeah, that's why I sort of went for that one.
0: But one in four die in the attempt, don't they?
1: One in four who summit. And and that's the problem with this mountain. Firstly, most years nobody actually gets up it. So you've got a, a, a low reward, but you've also got a high risk of sort of capitulating on the way down. Uh, it's a very, very risky, dangerous mountain. It's remote, steep rock climb, steep ice climb, technical uh rockfall dangers avalanche dangers awful snow conditions and awful weather put that together with the altitude and the remoteness it's what makes it such a gargantuan challenge
0: yeah and just even getting there i noticed from your book
1: yeah i mean it's it's not like an everest base camp trek or any treks in nepal with tea houses and nice <laughs> you, you're on a you're on a an arduous trek on this the boltoro glacier it's in pakistan china the back end of beyond in fact it's very named k2 it never acquired a local ethnic name because it's so remote from anywhere so yeah an arduous eight to nine day trek just to get there and you don't even see them out until the last day so it's quite surreal you are in the back end of beyond
0: what drives you to go and say right i want to do k2
1: well i speak a lot about this in in the book and look we all of us climbers, adventurers, we do this for the freedom, the nature, the challenge, the goal, personal goals, uh, and all these things. But I'm very open. You know, you don't do it to raise awareness of climate change or raise money for charities. You know, you don't do that. There's no time. There's no money. You do it for yourself, and it's so. I, I really do it for the for the internal significance. It's just that thing I've been doing since I was 16 years of age, and it's just it was just the latest, the hardest, and most stupid one of them all.
0: <laughs> yeah, you talk about that we need to be significant.
1: Yeah, I'm very passionate about this because I got into... I really went, stripped away the, the bare bones about why we do these things. As I said, there's lots of good reasons, but you do it for... You do it for yourself. That's what you do it. Now, that's all fine. and There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm finding... Strange, and once you get you realize it yourself is how social media has turned this on its head. We're not doing it for all these internal things of personal goals and self worth, self respect, and all these things. We're doing these things more and more for the external recognition, respect, attention, and fame. And I can see it every day in life in newspapers, on the streets, everything. People doing it for that Instagram shot. And I don't think most people would realize this, but that's what's that's why the queues in Everest, that's why so many people doing marathons and Ironman triathlons and, and all these things across the world, to, to really get that respect.
0: And you feel it should be about?
1: Well, I just think be honest about it. I mean, if, if you know, when the whole world social media has made our whole world so public, we're on display, we've got this desire... To sort of show that we're worthy, that we can achieve these things. I just think you've got to be honest about these things. Why you're doing it? And I say don't try and claim you're doing it for these great causes. I get it for the smaller levels, the small, you know, half marathons and marathons, but not these big levels. The money, time, and cost. You you do it for yourself.
0: In your book, there's quite some poignant moments where you you're leaving letters for your family. Your your kissing a photograph and you're very aware that i mean i think when you're doing something like k2 or and several of the other summits that you're facing the possibility of death does that haunt you or is that just a practical realization yeah i like to
1: think it's you know it's very few people actually willing to <laughs> put themselves into this thing i say soldiers doing going to battle but they're told to go in people have been given a terminal disease and they've got no choice but you know you're, you're willingly pulling yourself into the very real possibility that it could be the end of your time on this earth. And that makes two things. It makes you very reflective of what you've got, very appreciative of what you've got here. Makes you very careful risk, I'm gonna say it's not something I'm not reckless. It's not some at all costs. But you've got to be prepared that, you know, it, just just make making sure that your loved ones, this is in the case of my children, that um, you know, the reasons I did this and so you know, I can even talking now. I can think, well, look, it, it is a selfish preoccupation, but there's reasons, and we all do these things for our own sort of internal reasons, and I had them as well. Um, but yes, it, it makes you. There's a few moments of reflection, but you can't, you can't be distracted on these these things. You can't sort of think about you. Yeah, Your kids, when you're on this rock face and there's rocks coming down, you've got to be so, so focused and so blink of mindset because take your eye off the ball. And whether it's children, whether it's financial problems, personal problems,
2: whatever, you take your eye off the ball for maybe a few seconds and uh, you could could be the end of you. Placing one foot in front of the other, we edged our way to the final slopes. We were now well into the death zone, an elevation above 8,000 metres where humans cannot survive any length of time. It was a place and height we didn't belong. With the Everest season completed two months before, we were now the highest human beings on the entire planet. Below us, over 7 billion people would be going about their normal day-to-day lives on a Saturday in late July. Many would be on summer vacations, sightseeing, enjoying sun, sand and sea, visiting friends or relatives, driving or heading to airports for their holidays. All would be completely oblivious to what we were experiencing far above them.
0: I would imagine that there's a huge, huge amount of planning for something like K two.
1: Yeah, there's there's equipment, preparation, teammates, everything on the planning and preparation. You get that right and it and it makes it you know, in the army you had to, you know, train hard, fight easy. There was a sort of thing about that. But physical preparation as well. I mean I was the second year particularly I was physically the fittest I've been since special forces selection when I was in my early twenties. I mean that's the, the sort of stakes. But also the mental side, you know, you just I say get compartmentalization get into this mind frame that it's all or nothing if you're not prepared for that don't do it simple as that so yeah a lot of logistics a lot of planning mental preparation physical preparation
0: i'm talking to explorer mountaineer adrian hayes about his book one man's climb a journey of trauma tragedy and triumph on k2 the
1: thing about this and why sort of keynote it, it's not just a book about climbing a mountain it's as much lesson human development real relationships real teamwork society and our lives in the world below as it is the story of, of climbing k2 so there's really something in it for everyone and that's the most pleasing thing about the feedback i've had from the book
0: now when you were kind of saying right okay i want to climb k2 twice um when you're looking at a team how much is that about oh well he's uh, i know that he's really solid he's done this or she can do that or is it and get on with that person for an extended amount of time
1: I have been caught short on one of my teams on one ex- expedition where we had a five person team and they'd all done everything, but they didn't have that team ethos. It's critical, you know, and so and, and these team agreements, and I go through and I speak about it in the book, you go through everything, everything possibly that could undermine that team ethos. Top sporting teams have it, ex top expeditions have it. I've got it on our Mars One project, I'm an advisor to the Mars One project project the one-way mission to Mars and, uh, and it's all about the team and I think you know it's what, it's what I do in my team development consulting work you know it's about getting that same ethos in the corporate world which pays pittance to the to the importance of teamwork but it's so so critical whether, so you're, climbing, s- yes. whether you're climbing K2 or trying to be the best possible team in the corporate sector.
0: So you're saying team ethos must override individual aspiration?
1: It, it has to on these things and and it's a there's so many tools and techniques and models and agreements and all these things that we bring in the tools and techniques are exactly the same for getting a team out there now you could argue well yes the stakes are higher but you know you can argue the stakes are pretty high out there as well but it's it's so so critical of course you know out in the corporate world most 95 percent of organizations think they're going to get a great team by a once a year team building day you know, the old fun-based building a structure out of cardboard and models and, you know, all these things. Of course, that brings fun, and that's an important thing, but it won't create a great team.
0: So when you're actually planning for KT, you don't do those exercises where you've got to sort of fall into somebody <laughs> else's arms or whatever?
1: You know, you, I say you don't become the All Blacks by going 10-pin bowling <laughs> or a rugby team. You don't climb, you don't go to Mars relying on how we did crossing a swimming pool with some floats and ropes timed together. <laughs> and you don't climb K2 by building a structure out of balloons and cardboard on a table. They all do one thing and that's fun only. No, it's real concrete communication-based stuff. As I said, it's so, so critical. And I had a fantastic teammate, Canadian Al Hancock. And, uh, and I'll climb this guy for the rest of my life. Trust you know trust is what you 're absolutely the number one attribute you 're after absolute total trust, and you could don 't get that by these fun based team building days
0: when you climbed k two so um, how big were your teams
1: Well, we had a two person team myself and Al on the first year only and a wider team of, of eight of us on the second year. but we used the buddy buddy system everyone was with two two person teams so that 's You know, it's that looking after each other type thing. So a stronger team for the support, which is important, but again, back to your sort of two-person team.
0: And then do you sort of say, right, I'm team leader, so my decision is final, or do you have to be uh, more of a kind of diplomat with your team members?
1: That depends on how you're going to do the team, but we have to have the agreement in place beforehand. If there is one leader, then okay, but very rare will you have a do as I say, say as I do, sort of mentality. But we had an equal uh, mindset. We had all our agreements on what we're going to do on all sorts of situations.
0: So you have to travel, what, six to eight days before you see K2? Uh, It's
1: an eight-day trek, Argus trek, along the Boltero Glacier, yes. That trek is itself a a trek from a, a village which... Goes back to medieval times, which is itself an eight-hour drive on a mountain trek. So you, as I said, there's no habitation, no villages, nothing from when you leave this last village. Um, so it, it's, but it's arduous. It's a very, very tough trek.
0: How did you feel when you first saw K2?
1: Well, I recorded it on uh, for posterity, and uh, there was a lot of joviality in a way because, as you say you see that at this this glass you've been trekking for eight days. It takes a branch, and you turn left, and I stood off actually, until Kato had been entirely visible, came entirely visible into view, and recorded my reaction. Now, it was a lot of, you know, oh my goodness, look at it, and just looking up in the sky. It was, uh, it was a lot of joviality about it. But I think that perhaps the, the interesting point was, up to that point, it, it had been unknown. And, if I said in the months leading up to this, I was awake, waking every night sort of thinking, this is too risky, this is too selfish, I'm a father, you know, you, you, you wonder about these things because it's got such a horrendous history, such a horrendous reputation, this one in four who reached the top dying, the first three Brits to get up all getting killed. There's only five other Brits of us have got up there in the end, and so, but it's the unknown, and in your mind plays, you know, have it. We don't, as human beings, we don't like the unknown. We don't deal with the unknown very well, good or bad. Once you see it, once you see it in physically in front of you, there's a little element of the known, right? There it is, okay. It's real. It was beautiful weather at the day. Okay, um, it was looked horrendously steep. It was fierce, sheer ice axes, but it sort of lost a little bit of that power because it was it was real. Then it wasn't just a mystery. So uh, a mixture of joviality, laughter, awesome, awe-inspired, because it really was just magnificent. But then a, a feeling of right, it's real. Let's go and tackle this thing one step at a time so you can't tame nature you can't conquer a mountain edmund hillary once said you don't conquer the mountain you conquer a part of a part of yourself. and you know you know you're going to have to be very very lucky to get up there you know have to have a perfect weather conditions and be very lucky to get that brief glimpse of the summit so i suppose there's a you know it's just forming this sort of relationship with the mountain you know in and, and all around it i mean i often say that that when you do these mountain expeditions and one of the great joys about it is we get away from social media we get away from the screen overdose with our mind just you know multitasking and you get into a different frequency you know your observation muscles are just second to none, your awareness muscles your critical thinking problem solving awareness hearing listening skills sight skills communication everything's on this heightened level this frequency and and that is in itself a different state of being than when we're trunging through our screens day in, day out on this stress-induced lifestyle that we supposedly lead. So I suppose that's what it's about, just really getting in touch with things. Look, so many people, you know, have succumbed to K2 because they've been so self-obsessed. I'm going to climb that mountain. They, they stop listening. You've got to be aware and you've got to listen. Whatever people listening think that is, just your awareness muscles, your gut instinct? What is gut instinct? It doesn't feel right or it does feel right. And these things, these senses are just heightened on something like this. And I think that's about getting in touch with our innate
2: human spirit of who we are. And, uh, and, and that sort of was a very powerful thing for me. All told, I was on the summit for not much more than five minutes. Five precious minutes on a small piece of flat ice which would be insignificant were it not a small piece of flat ice at the very top of the notorious, tragedy-filled and dangerous second-highest mountain in the world. By the end of those minutes, the cloud and mist in the west blew up once more to smother the view and were threatening to envelop the entire mountain. I was lucky to have been able to take pictures and video in sunshine, but it was now time to go. Knowing that I would never again return to this precious but inhospitable site, which so few people in history have ever visited, I uttered a quiet farewell and appreciations to the mountain that had been so kind on this one day in time. I quickly donned my pack and led off ahead of the others who followed in a line behind.
0: You've done all sorts of things, like polar expeditions, crossing deserts in the footsteps of uh, Wilfred Thessiger. How do you cope being alone?
1: I actually quite like it. It uh, gives me time to think, it gives me a breather. I think it's being alone in nature, and there's some of the most joyous times I've had. I've been hiking the hills, the deserts, the jungles, or whatever, on my own, and really, again, gives you time to think. Every day, trekking for eight, nine, 10, 12, 16, 18, 20 hours howling wind on your own little world with uh you know uh, p- trekking across an ice cap so uh you took a lot of time on your own
0: now you were in special forces and uh also tell me about your gurkha history
1: yes yeah, so i i said left school at 16 and uh spent six or seven years adventuring around the world and everything under the sun from skydiving ocean sailing mountaineering rock climbing kayaking i worked in new zealand on a farm worked in norway on a farm six months time six months of each duration travel the world and uh, so i then thought oh, there's got to be a way to get paid to do this and uh, <laughs> um actually i tried to get um tried to join the british antarctic survey to work down there as a field assistant i wrote heard the americans the australians and new Zealanders, the south africans i even wrote to the President of the USA, uh, that Ronald Reagan it was. I wrote to dear President Reagan, can you please help me get to Antarctica? And He wrote back, or one of his staff did. Um, so it's all a bit funny these days. But I was what did s- he say? It said, well, thank you, but we don't actually contract to the South Pole, but thank you for your uh, interest, Adrian. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, was, I, I tried to work on the ships, these supply ships. So it was just, just life adventure, but I thought, no... Look, if I'm not going to be a guide doing these things, and I said. What well, I wasn't perhaps specialist enough to be a mountain guide. So, well, let's let's join the army. So, but it wasn't enough to just just to join the army. I want to join the SAS, you know, Special Air Service. And uh, but you can't join it from being being a farmer's labourer or a bricklayer's labourer, as I was. So, I I went the reserve unit. So, twenty one SAS, which is one of the reserve units, and did it full time, trained to become a paramedic. You know, got qualified in that, and it's amazing two years. But then. Um, you know, then decided to try and get a commission. And so I went to Sanders and then had eight years in the Brigade of Gurkhas. I said four years uh, in Hong Kong here and two years down in, in Brunei. And, you know, it, it was fantastic training. It, it probably bought the rebellious teenager and early twenties something into a little bit more discipline around it. Obviously, the physical fitness was secondary to none, but also the the mental discipline. I mean, it was a fantastic time. And I put my actual time down in the jungles, down in, in Brunei as probably the best physical training that I had for polar expeditions many years later. So phenomenal training. Um, and of course, with with the boys themselves, the Gurkhas, we, we you know, learned the language, but, you know, obviously got to know Nepal very well and the Hong Kong. And I'm not just saying this because I'm on radio in Hong Kong, but it, it, it remains, it always has been my favourite city in the world. I love coming back here. It's, got, it's a city that is just unique in the world. And I just a uh, very, very special time back here.
0: What were your, give me the dates of your four years here.
1: So I was uh, end of 85, so 86 and 87. And then I think 88, 89, uh, sorry, down in Brunei. Then 89 through to 91 in, in in Hong Kong again. So two, two years since. And
0: were you based in uh, Sekong?
1: We were based uh, up in the New Territories, yes, uh, so um, yeah, a couple of different barracks up there. Uh, and I played rugby, I played rugby for the Flying Cookeries, but we played against Kowloon and Hong Kong clubs, so we used to come down here regularly, and uh, it was great, and I said, look, we saw the Hong Kong that uh, it still exists, and it's still fantastic to be here. So I think the, the special thing about being a British officer in the Gurkhas, particularly nowadays, uh, and it's, of course um, I'm still in touch, I do things with With the brigade uh, as well, but we spent and still spend more time with the soldiers than perhaps British battalions, British regiments do. So, you know, basketball, volleyball, soccer. I played for the brigade in 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 soccer at the time. Although rugby was my first love. Um, (laughs) So, but but we um, we used to spend a lot more time with your soldiers. I mean, it's it's part of being a, a British officer, and. And of course, it comes with the language, the culture, the food, uh, everything. And I suppose that you know, the unique things, particularly going to Nepal, and I did many, I, I was never based there permanently, but it uh, assisted with recruitment, welfare, treks, and of course, mountaineering, gone back there, and also got my own medical project, which I'm doing every year, and of course, spending time in the hills with with the soldiers up there, I mean you're going places that no tourist goes and it's uh, the welcome you get in these villages uh, is just second to none it's a, it's a very special bond that we had and we still have and um, you can't replicate this
0: Tell me about the jungle in Brunei
1: Well the jungle was, was so great and I said earlier how it was probably the best training of all because the thing with jungles is you, you're devoid of support so most You know, militaries across the world, even then, back in the 80s and 90s, you know, you were helicopter sport trucks and you've got all these things, particularly nowadays, and technology's coming to everything. When you're in that jungle, it's just you, your compass, your pacer. You can't get sort of um, tracking on sat-navs or you couldn't then because there's so much tree canopy. And it's just your survival instincts become just second to none. I became really if I say to myself, you know, I was, I was pretty, a pretty pretty average peacetime soldier, to be honest, in the barracks and all the rest of it and all these and administration. But I was probably pretty good in the field and I think the jungle was my perhaps highlight, you know, became very proficient at survival uh, in this hostile terrain. And uh I'd say it was second ironic that secondary none ab- about for my expeditions later in the polar world. But it's a little things I mean I, I think you know your your ability to wade through a, a river or a stream with everything sealed your containers and that little uh seal container of of might it might be vaseline it might be zinc oxide tape it might be um ibuprofen or something that little things that make the difference between you get a blister on on, on these things whether it's jungle or or ice caps or wherever you know it's a it's a, a blister going down corner roads a problem but but a blister on these things could be the end of an expedition you've got to have these things readily hand and sort yourself out see like the oxygen mask scenario on a plane when in the event of lack of oxygen mask drops sort yourself out and then sort
2: others and you've got to have that mentality on these uh, uh, harsh terrains we scaled down below the ice seracs to the top of the bottleneck Weakened and drained and now in darkness, this was where we needed to be as alert as we had been the entire climb. The adrenaline was coursing through my body unchecked, urging me to move when everything in me wanted to stop. I felt more awake than I'd ever been, but I knew that was a fake mask. We were totally frazzled, yet knew that we needed to give it our all, meaning giving until you think you're spent, and then finding more to give anyway. It was the kind of endurance that transcends the normal capabilities of a human body one which demonstrated the immense reserves that our bodies can possess when crisis hits, and one that experience gives us the knowledge and skill to tap into, despite being completely debilitated.
0: We've been talking about One Man's Climb, a journey of trauma, tragedy and triumph on K2. So now, I mean, we haven't actually covered the the discipline required of of amalgamating all of those ideas and drawing it from them and all of those adventures into a book, which is a, a challenge in itself. But you've produced this. Are you going to be producing more books? Yeah, well, this one was my second book.
1: I did write a book across about the journey across the Arabian Desert. Um, I'm I'm more proud. This this is the proudest thing I've I've probably done. Proudest piece of work I've done it beats my Blue Peter badge. I got age ten. Uh, for those who know British uh, TV children's TV programme. Oh, but, oh uh, let's, uh,
0: yeah. how, why did you get the Blue Peter badge?
1: Oh, I don't know. Oh, just for some silly <laughs> thing. But um, so yeah, it, it, you get into flow writing this book. So there will be another book. Whether it comes next year, it won't be on adventures. It will be a a leadership development or a type of book. So I will be into that. So I've got many hats. And the adventures, and I will go back to these adventures. I've taken a little bit of sabbatical uh, for a few years, but again, just being clear about why I'm doing this, when all the first have been done. But I will go back to the Himalayas, probably. And And climb some more mountains just really for the getting away from it and and pursuing that personal goal. So there will be more to come. I'm only a young man. So, you know, one of the big things about these expeditions is uh, the big things is um, you can keep going. It's endurance gets better as you get older, and it's just, uh, you know, there's no need to sort of stop. I got a great quote. It's perhaps one that uh, you have to finish with You don't stop when you get old, you get old when you stop.
0: When you're actually not out in the field, do you sometimes get a hankering like when you're when you're back home, do you sort of bivouac in the garden?
1: <laughs> well, actually I sleep better in a tent than I ever do in a bed, to be honest. And I think there's a there's an earthing component. It's again it comes back to society today and and I've you know it's it's a passionate thing I I, I just how much a sociologist as I am a, a coach or a speaker or an author but I do but I do write about these things in the book as well you know how we're being zapped and frazzled by wi-fi by information overload and and we weren't designed for this and, you know, it's only the last 25 years we've had this from thousands of years of history. But when you get out and, and they've done surveys, and start, when you get out in a tent and sort of away from this thing, it probably it gets us into it again, gets us back in touch with nature's rhythms, gets us earthed. And I sleep better in a tent than ever before, apart from rock festivals, which I go to my, my, my daughter with her. The, the music's going all night, but I still love it. <laughs>
0: My thanks to explorer and adventurer Adrian Hayes talking there on his new book, One Man's Climb, A Journey of Trauma, Tragedy and Triumph on K2. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.